you uh, haven't been with us the last few weeks. We're continuing this morning in a uh, little series we've been doing in the book of 1 John. And the title is Being a Real Spiritual Person. And uh, the, uh, the context of that is not necessarily being really spiritual, like a very spiritual person, but being real as in genuine, being an authentic spiritual person. I want to start this morning with a question. If I were to ask you, what is the one identifying mark of a Christian? How do you know a Christian when you see one? What would you say? There have been uh, times in history, and you may have, if you've ever read any church history or, or seen pictures even of some of the early Quaker congregations and different congregations of people that would wear similar clothing. It all kind of dress alike, and that was how you knew. You could see them just like in different times. There have been other markers, little lapel pins or whatever. There uh, have even been different groups of people historically who had matching haircuts. Everybody would get the same haircut. I don't know if you can see that very well, but they, they got the same haircut there. I, I thought about that for us. Maybe we could get matching haircuts. I think that style might be an improvement for some of the guys but I, I didn't know if I could get the ladies to buy in. So um, most of us would probably say, no, 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 it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with your clothes or your jewelry or your, your hair. It's, it's not about external things. The way you know a Christian is internal. It's inside of us. Uh, you have to have the truth. You, ha- you have to know who Jesus is. You have to believe that Jesus is God, you have to, you have, to have uh, truth in your heart. That's how you know. And, you, and somebody else might say, well, no, 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 it's, it's truth, but it's faith. You've got to have faith. You can't just believe the right thing. You have to, you have, to have faith in that as well. And, and I guess I would say all of those things are important. I mean, maybe not the hair, but everything, all those are part of it. But if there is one distinguishing mark of a Christian... Uh, this is what uh, Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic. It would have to be love. In a, in a verse that we're actually not going to get to for a couple weeks, but in chapter 4 of 1 John, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Can you keep that baby quiet, please? I'm just kidding most beautiful girl in the world. I'm not biased at all. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. John says it's love. That's the mark of a Christian, is that they love one another. So uh, our title this morning is The Mark of a Christian. We're going to look at uh, the next section in 1 John chapter 3, but let's just pray first and uh, then we'll get into it. Father, just open your word to us this morning. Pray that you would reveal yourself, make yourself known, that you, Lord God, would show us uh, who you are and what it means to walk with you and, and really to be your followers in a very practical and real and tangible way in the world we live in today. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we're in First John chapter 3, and, and I'm going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. So as we said last week, uh, John is writing to refute the teaching of some folks who've kind of come into the church and they're sort of saying some stuff, uh, spreading different uh, theologies, different doctrines of things that are inconsistent with what it really means to be a Christian. And we mentioned that there are, John kind of gives us three proofs, three tests. Here's a way you know if someone's really, really walking with the Lord. And the first of those does have to do with beliefs. It's a, it's a, a, a truth test, knowing what is really true about who God is. The, the second thing, though, it has to do with our behavior. He says, if you, if you really do believe these things in your heart, then certainly your behavior will change. Your morals will be different than those in the world around you. And then the third one of those has to do with our relationships. And John says, not only will your internal behavior change, your life change, but how you relate to one another will be different if you're a follower of Christ. And so today's passage deals with that third test. We could call it the love test. Do we really love one another? I find it uh, challenging, to be honest, convicting in my own life. John does not uh, have a lot of gray area in his teaching today, in his, in his letter. This is, he's very direct. He says, you're either, a, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You either love or you hate. Um, there really is no middle ground in John's writing. He's stating his case very strongly. If we're following Jesus, if we're connected, if we're his people, then we will, in fact, love one another, and there won't be any question about that. It's interesting to me, and I think it's important to us, the context uh, for describing this love is that of the family. In the church, we are brothers and sisters. John talks about a brother, a real brother, a blood brother, who didn't love. And he says, don't be like Cain who killed his brother. Now, most of us, we kind of, you don't have to even be in the church very long. Maybe it's just your first or second time or you don't have a lot of history, but you can kind of figure that out. You get that church's family. That's, That's just what it is. It's family. I don't know that we understand, though, what a radical concept it was in the first century. Take a look at uh, what Jesus says here in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is uh, in a house. He's got some people around him, and he's teaching. And then his mother and brothers arrived. They were standing outside, and they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was, was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, hey your mom and your brothers are they're outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. He looked at those seated in a circle around him. He said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and my sister and my brother. So so today, 
our society uh, is, is much more mobile. And some of you probably uh, painfully understand that because people move. They move away. Uh, they, they move for all kinds of reasons. People follow a job. You know, I I talk to people all the time who just moved here to Oregon from somewhere else because they got a job at Intel or they got a job at Nike and they've left their family where they were from and now they're here. You might move to follow weather. Some people just say, you know, it's too hot in Phoenix. It's too cold in Minneapolis. It's too humid in Houston. And so I moved here. Uh, Some people follow the economy. It's just too expensive to live where they live. Somebody told me this last week that, Half of the people, 50% of the people living in the Bay Area today want to move. And they don't necessarily want to move because they don't like the Bay Area. They want to move because they just can't afford to live there anymore. So they need to move. So we move. We, we, our families are separate. It's not uncommon to have a brother or sister uh, living in a different state, father and mother, grandparents, aunts and uncles, all living in different states across the country. But in the first century, that would have been virtually unheard of. The people then lived much as people in other cultures do today. We don't see this here, but I've been in, uh, spent a lot of time in Latin America. In Latin America, it's not uncommon at all to have a family living in a a household together. The the grandparents, grandma, grandpa lives there, and maybe even a sister and their kids and cousins, and you're kind of all together, and that's the way it was in the first century. Families lived together and stayed together, and, and that's just how it happened. Today, you know, you might say a young person, I, I, I'm thinking about these graduates here, you know, a young person might say, well, uh, I, I have a dream. I want to I be a doctor. You know, my dad was a, uh, was, was a, a auto mechanic, but I don't want to be an auto mechanic. I want to be a doctor, and that's I'm going to pursue my dream. Some young lady might say, you know, well, my mom, she just stayed at home and, and watched the kids, and that was great for her, but I have other dreams. I want to do something different with my life. But in the first century, that wasn't the way it was. If your dad was a fisherman, guess what? You're a fisherman. The family business would pass on. You didn't have those kinds of options. Families stayed together in a very different way than we do today. So when Jesus says to this group of people, hey, this, look at my, those people outside, they are who they are, but these are my brothers and sisters. This is, this is my family right here. It was radical. They would have looked at him and said, what are you talking about? What do you mean by that? Jesus was redefining how we view ourselves and how we view our relationship with God by redefining what family means. He was saying, if you're a follower of mine, and if you're in relationship with me, then this is now your family. John Wimber used to say, when you come to Christ, you accept his church and his cause. You can't have one without the other. If you become one of my followers, your family is now not just those related to you by blood or marriage. Your family really is the other followers of Christ that are around you, brothers and sisters. 232 times in the New Testament, the church is referred to as brother and sister. It's the most commonly used metaphor in the New Testament for the church. We talk a lot about the body, the body of Christ, and, the, and, and how we fit together. And that, that certainly is a very good illustration of what it means to be the church. Uh, we talk about the temple and the, and the cornerstone and the living stones. Also a great illustration of what it means to be the church. But the most commonly used and probably the most profound illustration of what is the church today is family. Church is not 
something we go to. Church is who we are. It's who we are. We are deeply connected to one another, and we're deeply connected to one another whether we like it or not. The implications of what it means to be the family of Christ are far-reaching. I struggle sometimes, if I can be honest. Because I hear people say things like, well, and I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about people inside the church will say things like, well, the church is this or that, this way or that way. The church has this issue or that problem. And, and, and by even making that statement, they're inferring that they're, they have a problem, but I'm not part of them, and they're failing to recognize the actual connection we have. Look, if it's your problem, it's my problem. And if it's my problem, it's your problem, because that's the level of connection we have. If, you know, if you... We've all been there. If you get upset with your family... If you disagree with your family, if you get hurt by your family, guess what? They're still your family. You can walk away and pretend they're not your family, but you know what? They're still your family. And if we can be really, really honest, the Bible gives us a protocol for dealing with those issues, and it's not walking away. Scripturally, there is no justification for leaving the family. The, the upside of this, of course, is that family can be a place of shelter, a place of refuge. Uh, there are storms of life, and sometimes we need a place to rest and a place to heal, and uh, the church, the family of God can be that. You know, I, I, this, as I was preparing this week, I thought of this. You know, we talk a lot here about serving and giving in the kingdom of God and the focus of, of really loving our community and reaching out. And, and we ask people to serve and to give and to do all these things. And I, I, I wanted to say this morning, if you find yourself in that place where you just need to rest and just need to heal, please know that's okay. Please know it's okay. Don't ever feel pressure to have to sign up for anything or do anything. You can come here and you can sit and you can rest and you can just heal. We want to be that. We want to be that sanctuary where uh, if the storms of life are, are wearing down on you, you can come here. You can sit in, in, in a chair and you can close your eyes and you can worship God and you can just allow the Spirit of God to bring healing and that's okay. And, and you don't ever have to feel guilty for that. And, and when those times come and they're going to be seasons of those times in all of our lives and sometimes they'll pass in a few weeks and sometimes it'll take a few months and sometimes it might take a few years and that's okay because that's, that's who we are and what we do. Another, uh, another benefit of being in the church family is this. When you screw up, you'll still be accepted. Jesus put it this way. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Matthew is a tax collector, and the religious people of the day were not fond of tax collectors. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus is at a party with a bunch of sinners. What in the world? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
John Wimber said something once I'll never forget. It was the context of a sermon. He was talking about the damage that sin does to our lives. And he said, if you step off a curb and get hit by a truck, it doesn't matter if the light was red or green, the pain is the same. If you get run over, maybe the light was green. It was You had the right of way, and, and the truck shouldn't have hit you, but he did, and you hurt. But on the other hand, if the light was red, and you made the mistake, and you walked off the curb when you shouldn't have, and the truck hit you... The pain is the same. Sin in our lives will cause pain, whether it's sin that somebody does to us or whether it's sin that we do to them. But the reality is this. In either case, we can come to the church and we can rest and we can heal. Amen? I want to just say today, Jesus didn't come for the super successful, really, really good-looking, have-it-all-together people. Jesus came for the broken. Can I make a plug for small groups right now? Would that be okay? Is that good? Uh, You know, why do we have small groups? Is it so that we can sit around in a circle and, you know, have a nice chat and eat pie? Or chocolate hazelnut Oreos? Our group, we were smaller than us. Only a few of us, and I think we, we pounded two packages of chocolate hazelnut Oreos. That is a reason for small groups. But it's not the real reason. The real reason is this. Small groups are a place to know and be known. It's a place where you can go when you're hurting or tired or when you've screwed up. Uh, you know, it's, it, we, were, we were praying before service this morning and Tucker said, I love Sundays. I just love Sundays. And I have it in my notes. I love Sundays. I do. I love coming here. I really do. I, I love when I walk in the door in the morning and usually as I'm walking up, I can hear these guys practicing and rehearsing, and I love that. I, I, I love it. I, I love being with you and seeing your faces. Uh, I love everything about it. I told somebody this morning, my favorite time, actually, if I'm, this is true confessions, my favorite time of the whole service is right at the end when those doors open and all those kids come running in here. Because that's what they do. And it's chaos. And I love that. I really do. I love that. But here's the thing. I also know that it can be easy to not know and be known in this context. Look, here, by most standards, we are a fairly small church. But even in a church this size, you can remain anonymous. You can sneak in and sneak out. You, you, you can easily not know or be known. It's busy here. The the truth is most of us have some sort of responsibility on Sunday morning and we're busy and we're doing stuff and we're thinking about 17 different things and you might not connect with everybody and you might not connect with the one person that really needs to be connected with today. That happens. It just does. But in a small group, that dynamic, that process becomes much more real and much more tangible. It's much more difficult to be anonymous in a small group. The truth is this, if your group is functioning the way it's supposed to, you don't even have to say anything. All you have to do is walk in the door and somebody goes, what's wrong with you? Because they know who you are. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to get into a group. And, and if you know what, if there aren't any groups that 
work for you on our current roster, I, I would just encourage you to, to go talk to Kevin and, and ask him if there is a possibility. Can we start a group on this night or in this town or whatever? Just, just work on it. We'll work on it together because in the church, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. That's, that's really the essence of what it means to be the family of Christ. And, and, and again, I think that can happen in, in this context, in a larger setting, but it's best facilitated in a small group. We just go through things together. We go through stuff together. Sometimes you don't know what to say, you know what I mean? I, that's the hardest part about it. Somebody's going through something and you just don't know what to say, and so typically we don't say anything because we don't know what to say. But the truth is, we don't really necessarily have to say anything. Sometimes you just be there. I, I read a story this week. It was both simultaneously corny and, and really profound. So the story was this. Uh, there was an elderly gentleman, and his wife passed away. Kind of small town, neighborhood, you know, and uh, he has a front porch, you know, on his house, and he's just out on his front porch sitting in a chair there, just grieving the loss of his wife. He's crying. And a little boy next door, a little four-year-old kid next door, looks over and he sees this man crying. And so he walks across the lawn and he goes up the steps and sits down on the man's lap. And he just sits there for a little while. And he comes home. His mom goes, well, what did you say? He goes, well, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. Aww. I told you it was corny and profound all at once. Um, but, you know, sometimes that's the essence of it, isn't it? You don't have to say anything. You just be there. Just, just presence. Family is a place where we share, we rejoice with those who rejoice. It was great this morning to pray for our dads and pray for our grads and just say, way to go. And sometimes we mourn with those who mourn. The other thing I, I like about the family, the body of Christ, is that it's a place where we can help one another grow. You know, uh, how do you live? How, how do you learn how to be married? How do you learn how to raise kids? How do you learn how to be grandparents? Every phase of life is something new, and we learn that together. Donna and I, you know, when our kids were little, we had friends in the church who were a few years older than us, and they helped us learn how to raise our kids. It's, it's, it's a powerful thing. It's, it's, it's a great place uh, to be in this family. John also gives us uh, some ideas of what it's not. Don't be like Cain. He killed his brother. Don't do that. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Again, John is painting in, you know, black and white here. There's no color on his palette, brother. If you hate, you're a, you're a murderer. You know, some of us, we're going to read that and you're going to go, you know, I don't hate anybody. What is it to hate somebody? It's, it's, really, it's this. It's to dehumanize another person. It's to not recognize that person as a child of God created in the image of God. It's to not recognize that that person has inestimable value in the eyes of God. That's what it is. It's to feel no sense of connection, no sense of commitment to that person. Uh, you know, in our culture today, in our society today, uh, one of the tragedies is that so often in so many people's lives, other people exist only to help them get what they want. John says, don't be like that. 
Cain killed his brother. John says, love in the body of Christ is the exact opposite of that. You don't kill, but you actually lay down your life like Jesus did for our brothers and sisters. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Most of us will not be called to actually physically lay down our life and die for our brothers and sisters. Some of us may, I don't know, but my guess is that probably we won't. But he clarifies a little bit in the final verses here, and he says, if anyone has material possessions and he sees a brother or sister in need, has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Let us love not with words or speech, but in action and truth. We're called to make sacrifice, to live sacrificially on behalf of one another throughout the course of our lives, to lay down our lives consistently on behalf of our brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to do. Francis Schaeffer said, love must be visible, which, by the way, um, if you're a reader, I I often recommend books to you. Uh, Part of my title this morning and, and part of the message came from a little book by Francis Schaeffer called The Mark of a Christian. He's a philosopher, and a lot of his stuff is real heady and out there, but this, it's a little short book, and it's actually really quite good. You can get it on Amazon, The Mark of a Christian. He said, love has to be visible. John Wimber put it this way. He said, uh, love has shoe leather. You walk it out. You live it out. It's not in here. It's, it's on the ground. Um, I'll close with this, and if uh, the worship team wants to come up while we're finishing up, you can do that. Uh, I, I just want to say this. Uh, in the context of the church being the family of God, I, I am blessed by you guys. I really am. I am truly blessed to be a part of this part of the family in this congregation. I love the way that you guys love each other. I really do. You take care of each other. You watch out for each other. You help each other move, which is fantastic. I mean, moving sucks. Can we just is that can we be universally agreed upon that moving sucks? But you guys go and help each other move. Uh, you t- you watch each other's kids. You know what I mean? You, you, you cook and, and make meals for one another when you're in the hospital or somebody's sick. And those are, they seem like little things, but the truth is they're very tangible, invisible expressions of love. And, and it blesses me. It blesses me to see that in you guys. And I want to thank you for being who you are. Uh, I'm honored to, to be a part of the community that, that is you guys. So John tells us that real spiritual people are people who love their brothers and sisters in practical ways.